Welcome to the MD Anderson Plastic Surgery Podcast. I'm Malka Assad, a research fellow in the Department of Plastic Surgery at MD Anderson under the supervision of Dr. Charles Butler. And in this podcast, we will cover diverse topics related to reconstruction and microsurgery from experts in the field. Today, I have the great honor of being joined by Dr. Jesse Selber to talk about prepectoral breast reconstruction. Dr. Selber is a professor in the Department of Plastic Surgery here at MD Anderson and his clinical practice and research are focused on breast reconstruction, surgical education, innovation, and robotic surgery. Welcome, Dr. Selber, to the first episode of this podcast. Thanks for having me. Today, we will discuss the evolution of the prepectoral breast reconstruction, the advantages and disadvantages, and appropriate patient selection. Dr. Selber, prepectoral breast reconstruction has been known for a long time and has been associated with high complication rates which is one of the reasons why plastic surgeons transition to the subpectoral technique. However, recently there has been an increased interest in the prepectoral technique and the results are promising. Can you talk about the evolution of the implant placement for breast reconstruction? Sure. I mean, I'll, I'll tell you a little bit of what I know about it. I'm not a great uh, historian of plastic surgery, but um, you know, implants were developed in the early 60s actually here in the med center by Cronin and company and for first used in the early 60s uh, for use in reconstruction um, you know they were originally placed in the prepectoral plane uh, with as you mentioned high complication rates and because of that and because of soft tissue concerns people started using the pectoralis major muscle um, a lot has changed uh, since that time to allow for a new era of prepec reconstruction and we can go over some of the details of that, but I would include, you know, in that list of advancements, um, changes in the mastectomy, for instance, skin sparing mastectomies and nipple sparing mastectomies have replaced uh, more uh, skin sacrificing mastectomies. Uh, until 2005, there was no ADM, and ADM has really helped us to reconsider uh, how to think about the lower pole and how we use it. We are now on. I guess our fifth generation or so of implants. And so the implants have changed quite a bit and make uh, complication rates uh, more tolerable. And the use of expanders with tabs allows us to position expanders uh, without the use of substantial reinforcing techniques, uh, which was one of the reasons why the PEC was helpful. Uh, and so I think there were, you know, there's a, there's a convergence of events which occurred, which have sort of allowed us to come full circle in a way back to prepec, uh, but with a different set of tools, a different set of techniques, and a different understanding of the breast. These are very important points, and that brings us to our second question, which is, what do you think are the main advantages and disadvantages of prepec versus subtech technique in, in our current advancement? Well, you know, I'll just tell you from where I am now, I do almost 100% prepec reconstruction. And, and that's evolved a little bit from a period when I was a little more selective um, and was concerned about certain patients, such as uh, the thin population, the radiated population. We can talk about all that. I've now moved to 100% prepec reconstruction. The only person who gets a subpec reconstruction in my practice is someone who had pre existing subpec augmentation. Uh, and even in some of those patients, they're getting site switched. So my thinking has evolved on this subject uh, from, I, from believing that there was a, a smaller cohort of patients who were appropriate 
for this to thinking that pretty much everybody is going to do better with this reconstruction. So what's the problem with raising the back? People did it for a long time and uh, it was a reasonable technique. Well, there's pain and post-operative discomfort that comes with uh, the elevation of the pec and then the expansion of it. There is long-term chest wall tightness. You have concerns for hyperanimation, deformities, which everybody has some degree of, uh, whether it's debilitating or not. It's not anatomic. The implants are not supposed to be behind the pec muscle. Um, that's an odd place for them uh, to be in terms of basic human anatomy. And you often get inadequate medial and superior fullness because the pec muscle tends to push the implant um, uh, out and down uh, because of its force of contraction and also just because of its basic location. Um, there's also some long-term functional mobility associated with disinserting the pec. Um, you know, for, for mid-level athletic people, it's, that's not so much a concern, but uh, certainly for the modern, uh, the modern woman, that may be more of a concern than it was in the past. Um, Evolution from sub-PEC to pre-PEC has been uh, a little bit rocky for some uh, because the technique is different and that requires some getting used to. We can talk about that. That's awesome. Appropriate patient selection is extremely important in optimizing the outcomes of the prepectoral technique. What are the criteria that you use when selecting patients to undergo prepectoral breast reconstruction? Yeah, so as I was sort of alluding to before, my thinking has evolved on this subject. Um, the more people who are using this technique in a way that I would say is more conservative are putting it in thinner women because of upper pole disguising of the device. Uh, they may be um, eliminating it in people who are at higher risk for skin complications, just radiation, smoking, diabetes, obesity, age, or things of flaps. Um, my belief is now, my belief was once that the PEC was protective uh, against some of these concerns. I, I no longer believe that to be true. If you think about the way that we're using ADM with sub-PEC reconstruction, the PEC is really only covering the upper mastectomy flap anyway. I mean, in most patients, it's barely under the incision. If it's under the incision at all, you usually have ADM there anyway. Uh, so half the implant is in a dual plane position. So the idea, I think, that you know, we're somehow protecting the skin uh, in a global sense, I think is a false notion. Uh, we're only protecting the upper pole of the skin anyway, and I don't, I don't think we're even really doing so much of that. Um, if your skin is, is compromised, or you believe that your skin is compromised, my tendency now would be to delay reconstruction completely, or uh, use a flat implant, or a, a, a less filled implant in the prepectoral space, rather than trying to disguise a skin problem by creating a PEC problem. I, I think that um, the PEC will not rescue mastectomy flaps, which are going to die. That must be done in another way. So you don't have any contraindications for patients to be selected for the prepectoral as opposed to the subpectoral technique? That's correct. And I mean, the, the one thing I think is, which is an area of controversy there uh, is in radiation. And there are, and I was, I, as many people were in the camp that if you're going to get radiated, that you should uh, potentially use the pack to help protect the skin from the radiation. As I've gone on in my experience uh, with this, what I've realized is that what the possibly the most affected tissue, negatively affected tissue by radiation is the pectoralis muscle. 
uh, it becomes extremely fibrotic. It pulls the implant and distorts it, and uh, it harms the overall shape of the breast, and it contracts quite a bit. Um, as we know, ADM is somewhat protective of capsular contracture in general, and it certainly avoids the problem with pectoralis muscle fibrosis. The skin is much less effective than the muscle in reality. So for patients who undergo radiation, it's better to put the implant in the prepectoral as opposed to the subpectoral plane? Absolutely. I think that's one of the, it used to be, I, I believe it used to be one of the strong contraindications. Now I think it's, it's one of my strongest indications, as I said, because the pec is the most negatively affected of any of the, the chest wall structures by radiation. Uh, and if you're going to convert to reconstruction at some point, uh, it makes conversion to autology, elevating the pec and having the, the, the tissue expand or, or implant in that plane makes eventual free autologous reconstruction much more difficult because the posterior capsule has scarred uh, the anterior surface of the rib. And so if you're going to, in, in a delayed immediate protocol, if you're going quickly or even after radiation to autologous reconstruction, both of those transitions are going to be facilitated greatly by prepectoral reconstruction. And any thoughts about patients who have history of radiation as opposed to post-mastectomy radiation? I think for this situation, radiation is not radiation is not radiation, which we hear all the time, but what are the specifics of that? So the specifics of that are what is the quality of the skin? And you know that can be, you don't need to know how many gray of radiation, you don't need to know where they got their radiation. You just need to evaluate the quality of the skin envelope. Uh, the general rule is if the skin envelope looks and feels okay and is, is not tightly adherent to the chest wall, then it probably is okay. Um, if the skin doesn't look like it's going to budge and it's scarred down to the chest wall, then it's probably not going to be okay. You, you probably need to bring in some skin and autologous tissue from somewhere. These are really some great points. And now moving on to intraoperative mastectomy flap assessment, which can be clinical or device assisted. What is your preferred method of intraoperative mastectomy flap assessment prior to choosing the implant plane? I typically use... Um, uh, assess clinical assessment. Uh, in assigning green or laser angiography is a good technique. Um, yeah, I think it's especially useful for surgeons who are still getting a sense of uh, what's okay and what's not okay in terms of clinical evaluation of mastectomy flaps. Uh, I always freshen up the edges of a skin sparing or a nipple sparing mastectomy. If those edges are bleeding, uh, then, you know, even if the blood is a little bit darker. Uh, then those flaps are going to be okay. If you have large areas of bruising, necrosis, or areas where you can, uh, where you have uh, even blistering in some cases, uh, you have to be very careful in those situations. And I would recommend either delaying reconstruction or putting a completely flat device in. Uh, don't elevate the pec and cause the patient uh, functional morbidity and discomfort. Uh, it's, it's basically just an escalating commitment to a losing endeavor. In that situation, the best thing to do is to put your mastectomy flaps down, let the patient heal for two weeks, come back another day, and use the prepec plane as you would have previously. Uh, that's much, much more desirable uh, than elevating the pec when you didn't have to, and it's, it's probably not going to help you out of your problem anyway. So when the mastectomy skin flap assessment is not appropriate for a prepectoral implant placement, you prefer to delay the reconstruction rather than put a subpectoral implant. Yes, and that's for me. That's a clinical assessment. If you have um, 
a dark skinned patient, uh, that's those are situations when you may want to use the uh, laser photography or, or if you have um, some risk factors that you're concerned about, or some people just use it for documentation. And I think all of that is fun. Dr. Selber, in your prior study of over 500 subpectoral implant-based reconstruction, you showed that higher fill volume was associated with implant failure. Do you follow the same recommendation for prepectoral breast reconstruction? No. The fill volume for me is the volume that fills the skin envelope um, appropriately, but not uh, to the point of tightness. And, you know, so from a practical standpoint, I pick my device by the base width of the bucket um, or the footprint of the breast. Sometimes the mastectomists will violate those boundaries, especially laterally, uh, where they take the dissection off into the anterior border of the latissimus. But I use the anterior axillary line as the lateral boundary. That, that into the medial portion of the pocket should be the base width of the device that you pick. Uh, and of course, you can, and you can change the volume based on your fill volume. What I have found, generally speaking, is that if you get the right base width out of the box for uh, an expander that's al already got some air in it, um, you can use that as the shape when you're constructing your ADM. And then the important thing is to redrape the skin envelope so that all the layer, th this is a very important point, and I think uh, it's just worth emphasizing a little bit. The skin, the ADM, and the implant should be in apposition to one another. Uh, and the way that I think about this is the way that I think about a skin graft. So in a skin graft, the wound bed, the skin graft, and the bolster to be up against each other. Uh, you don't want it to be too tight or the skin graft won't work, and you don't want it to be too loose or fluid will collect. You want those three layers to be up against one another. The same can be said of uh, the skin of the mastectomy, the ADM, and the implant, where the skin of the mastectomy is the wound bed, the ADM is the skin graft, and the implant is the bolster. Those three things should be in, uh, up against one another for good healing and integration to occur. If you have too much space because your device is underfilled, you're going to get a seroma. And if it's too tight because the device is overfilled, you're going to get mastectomy flaminosis. So it really takes the um, uh, reason why I think we had a lot of seromas in the early going is because we were not as attuned to the necessity of that technique. Dr. Selber, the use of ADM is another controversial issue for breast reconstruction, especially that ADM does not have FDA approval for its use in breast reconstruction, the concern over high complication rate, the cost, and the lack of high quality evidence for ADM to be associated with decreased capsular contracture. What is your recommendation regarding the use of ADM in prepectoral breast reconstruction? Well, you've hit on a number of topics there, and, and they are all worthy of, of a, lo a long discussion. The bottom line, though, for me is um, if you're going to put the implant into a space, unless you have a very thick skin and soft tissue envelope, which with the use of good mastectomies, you probably won't have. You do need some support for the implant or uh, the skin of the breast will stretch out over time, like the breast does. And so if, if that skin is not supported, um, you're gonna get, you're gonna get uh, a lot of stretch and, and you'll lose um, placement of the implant. So I do think something has to play a structural role to support the implant. Does it have to be ADM? 
Uh, no, it doesn't have to be ADM, um, but I don't think it should be synthetic and um, it can't be something that has a high inflammatory uh, response and it can't be something that doesn't incorporate. So what that ultimately that material will be, um, I'm agnostic to it and I, I think ADM is too expensive and probably the use of human and animal products, especially as on block you know, skin, uh, is not where we're going to go ultimately with this because of the expense and the sourcing problems. Uh, but I think there has to be something that plays a structural role long term uh, so that the, uh, there is device stability within the skin envelope. Do you prefer the complete coverage of the implant or just the partial anterior coverage for the ADM? Yeah, that's a great question. So, I mean, I thought early on I was convinced that anterior coverage was the way to go. And my technique originally was uh, to suture the ADM in the upper half uh, of the breast pocket and then put the implant in underneath it and then drape the ADM over the implant or tissue expander and suture it around the bottom. So I was just pr providing anterior uh, coverage and sewing the ADM to the chest wall to hold the implant in. Uh, they're doing using an inframammary incision uh, for nipple sparing. The upper border of that suture line is a little bit difficult to get to. So in the, for in those cases, I started just doing a complete wrap. What I noticed was that there was absolutely no difference in outcomes between the anterior coverage technique and the complete wrap, and the complete wrap was much technically easier to execute. And so I moved to a complete wrap, having done uh, both extensively. Uh, I believe that the complete wrap is a little more versatile, it's a little easier to do, and provides the same outcomes. And any preference regarding the use of fenestrated ADM? I don't think it matters. And do you have any recommendations regarding the use of drains? I usually use two drains uh, in a C cup or higher, in a B cup, or lower, I use one drain. If there's been any axillary work, I add a second drain. Uh, drains, I think, were more important when I was being less um, detailed about the redraping of the skin and leaving no space. If you have space, uh, fluid's gonna collect and you need to leave your drains in for longer. And ADM, we know from the study that, I, that you referenced earlier that I did, um, not only is ADM aromogenic, but stromogenic in proportion to uh, the square centimeter of use. So we know at ADM uh, does generate seromas if uh, it doesn't start to incorporate. But if you oppose it well to the skin and you don't leave any dead space, uh, then that is going to be much less of a problem and you can take your drains out, you know, uh, pretty early. Maybe, maybe between one and three weeks, depending on the size of the breast. And when using the prepectoral breast reconstruction for breast cancer patients, do you prefer to use direct-to-implant or a tissue expander followed by an implant placement? Um, you know, two-stage reconstruction is by far the more common scenario. Um, I think it depends. Uh, it depends primarily on your mastectomy flap quality and, and secondarily on the oncologic treatment plan. So... Uh, if you think there's going to be, I'll, I'll address the second point first. If you think there's going to be radiation, uh, at least in our practice, you don't want to put a full-size implant in. Uh, it makes it difficult to incorporate the skin in with the, um, the rest of the 3D uh, planning for radiation without including the, the mediastinum and the heart. So 
for that reason, you don't want to put a full size implant and that makes direct to implant uh, less, less of a good idea. Um, in the absence of those considerations, uh, then, then you have to think about the skin flaps and if they'll tolerate a full size device, unless a patient, uh, unless the skin flaps can tolerate either uh, the size of the breast they had or slightly larger, uh, which is what they'll need to fill the skin envelope, um, then they need to be delayed. If their skin can tolerate the full size implant, then you can go direct to implant. Uh, I would say that uh, there are practices where skin flaps are, you know, one centimeter thick, and in those situations, people can reliably do uh, DTI or direct implant. Um, working with the 25 breast surgeons that we have here, there's quite a bit of heterogeneity, and there's um, much more multimodal therapy, and so direct implant is much less practical in our setting. And any thoughts regarding the type of implant? I use smooth round gel implants. Um, the more the more cohesive uh, devices, most most modern implants uh, that are smooth round gel are somewhat more cohesive uh, than in the past, although they're a little less cohesive than, for instance, the 410s or some of the shape textured devices. Um, I think the rippling is not really dependent on implant cohesion. It's more dependent on uh, pocket creation and how much the pocket uh, matches the implant that's selected. I usually uh, pick high profile devices unless somebody is a very wide and flat chest wall, uh, in which case I'll pick moderate plus devices. I think choice of implant is a little less important than choice of expander for me. I have no financial relationship with any of these companies, but I want an expander that's a little bit stiffer and shows me the shape of the, the final reconstruction. And so for me, the Arturo implant, uh, which is a mentor device, does that. Uh, it's not floppy, and when, even when filled with um, air at its normal uh, out-of-the-box uh, volume, um, it simulates the shape of the breast well and gives you a good idea of how to redrape the skin. The problem I have with some of the floppier devices is that um, you sort of have to guess at uh, the skin redraping because you're not full enough for uh, accurate uh, reproduction of the breast mound and find it more difficult to shape the breast in those situations. The other thing is um, I use air and I, you know, a lot of people use air and people talk about, well, why do you need to use it? Why is it important? There's a couple of reasons. Um, put air in a device, uh, the device tends to fill out uniformly or structured devices and you can get a sense of what the breast mount looks like. That allows you to drape the ADM well, that allows you to redrape the skin well. And as I said, that is device and the skin and the ADM is very important. With the floppier devices, and especially when you fill them in saline, with saline, the saline tends to slosh to the side. Um, the device is much more amorphous and it's much more difficult to uh, appropriately drape the ADM in the skin. You're more likely to get dead space and fluid. And so I think technique and, and TE selection is really important. That brings us to the end of our discussion. Dr. Silber, would you like to share any additional thoughts on this topic? No, I just think that, you know, just anecdotally, you know, uh, change happens quickly and, and sometimes it's uh, for no good reason and sometimes it's for very good reasons. But, you know, if you have um, surgery is sort of a conservative field, you know, by nature and, and that's because we have people's lives in our hands and so being cavalier is not, is not appropriate. 
Uh, but I'll just give you an example of the change that occurred uh, at our institution. I would say three to four years ago, uh, I was the only person doing prepack reconstruction, and I was so I was so sold on uh, its use that I talked about it a lot, and a lot of my colleagues uh, thought it was crazy, and you know thought that. Um, for all the reasons that, that we had concerns to begin with, soft tissue coverage, upper pole management, radiation, and so forth, uh, that this could never be a sustainable model. Um, I can tell you that out of 23 faculty that we have now, um, I don't know of a single person who is routinely doing subpack reconstruction. And so um, that swept through our department very quickly. Uh, and it's not a fad, um, and it's certainly not because we have cavalier surgeons who are eager to change their technique. It's because the technique works better, and it's better for patients, and um, I think that's evidenced by uh, the conversion that you've seen from uh, the, pre the pre subpec to the prepec space in the plastic surgery community in general. The thing I will say uh, parenthetically about, you know, this kind of breast reconstruction is um, because of the relationship of industry and need for a lot of products when we do breast reconstructions, it's becoming quite expensive, um, becoming, in my opinion, uh, prohibitive, prohibitively expensive to be sustainable in the long term. You know, these 20 by 20 sheets of ADM cost upwards of $10,000. The implants, you know, 1000 bucks. Some of the expanders are between one and $2,000 you know, in use of the ensign in green and spy is an additional expense. Uh, and that doesn't uh, say anything for the professional fees and the technical fees from the operating room and the, and the OR, I mean, and the hospital. And so, you know, we, ha we do have to find a way to uh, limit the cost to the system of these breast reconstructions and still make them aesthetically desirable um, for, for long-term sustainability of the programs. That's going to wrap up our discussion for today's episode. I would like to thank you, Dr. Selber, for joining us today. It was a pleasure. Um, thanks for your time. If you like this podcast, tell your colleagues about it. Subscribe, rate us, and review us on the Apple Podcast. You can send your thoughts to masaad at mdanderson.org. We would like to point out that the information and material provided during this podcast are just recommendations. There are other medically appropriate options available that are not addressed in this podcast, and every provider must exercise independent medical judgment to determine what is medically appropriate and best practice based on each individual patient's medical needs. As a listener of this podcast, you agree to release from liability and hold harmless UTMD Anderson, its agencies, officers, and employees from any incident, injury, illness, death, loss, or damage arising from or relating to, directly or indirectly, this podcast. Thank you everyone for listening, I'm Malka Asad and this is the MD Anderson Plastic Surgery Podcast.